1: The children of the 80s are back, and we've got another film review of one of our favorite films from the 1980s. I'm Patrick. I'm Scott. And I am Little Asian Chris. And this week, we're reviewing 1987's classic, Good Morning Vietnam, the first film that Robin Williams was nominated for Best Actor for. But first, before we get into this wonderful film, we have a word from our sponsor.
0: This podcast is brought to you by the George Takai School of Method Acting. Are you an Asian male between the ages of 18 and 80? Oh, my. Do you have a fondness for leisure suits and Walter Brennan? Oh, my. Do you have trouble saying fa-la-la-la-la without the letter R? Oh, my, my, my. If so, then the George Takai School of Method Acting might be for you. Our intensive 15-week course will train you in speech, diction, voice projection, posture, and kung fu. At the George Takai School of Method Acting, we cover all the bases so you don't end up like William Shatner, slinging crappy products for second-rate companies well into your retirement.
2: You want it? Maybe. Just bust a move.
0: (laughs) Oh, my. (sighs) George Takai is not affiliated with the George Takai School of Method Acting.
1: Okay.
2: <laughs> well done.
1: All right. Who has a summary this week? I have the summary this week. Scott, lay us that sweet, funny summary that I know you've brought for
2: us. <laughs> oh, the buildup. This is this is my first summary, and uh, I I think you built this thing up way too much. Yeah. Here we go. In 1965, after a vacation in Greece, Brigadier General Taylor heard Airman Second Class Adrian Cronauer on the Armed Forces Radio Network Europe and did him a real solid by forcing a transfer from Radio Crete to beautiful Saigon right at the peak of the Vietnam War. This transfer to entertain the troops in Asia would allow Kronauer to introduce an irreverent style that must have been loved in Europe but would piss off the brass in Vietnam. Our hero Adrian arrives in Saigon to be greeted by Private First Class Edward Montesquieu Garlick, who incidentally has a striking resemblance to Idi Amin and that hard-ass cop in The Shield. Cronauer opens his first shift with a monologue which shocks and thrills everyone. Everyone, that is, except the station manager and program director who are offended by either Adrian's irreverence or the fact that he is actually funny. Program director's Second Lieutenant Stephen Hawk nearly passes out when Cronauer spins Martha and the Vandells instead of Lawrence Welk's orchestra. Unfortunately for Adrian, Hawk's anger does not compare with that of Sergeant Major Philip Dickerson, who declares all-out war on Cronauer. Hawk, at the direction of Dickerson, adheres to strict Army guidelines in terms of humor and music programming, placing Adrian in a position of either complying with orders or entertaining the troops. Adrian chooses the latter, and we have a movie. Despite Dickerson's abuse, Adrian keeps his show going. Brigadier General Taylor and the other DJs who love Adrian and his brand of comedy come to his aid and assist Adrian in getting Hawk and Dickerson off of his back. While Cronauer gets some leeway from the general, it continues to anger Adrian that any news reported must be cleared by the government censors. What survives the censors gives Adrian little more to report on than the weather, assuming it's not too hot outside. Between shifts, Cronauer spots the beautiful Trin, a Vietnamese girl who is apparently a lot less hairy than the girls in Crete. Adrian follows Trin to her English class and, with no other moves to make, bribes the teacher to let him take over the job. Cronauer starts instructing the students in the use of American slang and rock and roll. Once class is dismissed, he tries to talk to Trin but is stopped by her brother, Duong. In a move that has never worked, ever, Cronauer befriends Thung to get Trin to encourage their blossoming friendship and possibly look cool to Trin. Adrian takes Thung to Jimmy Waz, the local GI bar to have drinks with garlic and the station staff. At Jimmy Waz, two soldiers are angered at Thung, a Vietnamese native's presence in their bar. Imagine that, a Vietnamese native going into a bar in Saigon. Is nothing sacred? As Adrian is looking to befriend Thung in order to impress Trin. Kronauer throws a punch to make it clear that Thung is cool. That punch turned into an all-out brawl, which surprisingly enough would also piss off the brass. Dickerson reprimands Kronauer for the incident, but his broadcasts continue as before, making the troops happy and really ticking off Dickerson and Hawk. While kicking back with a cold one at Jimmy Waz, Adrian is spotted by Thong, who pulls him out of the bar to go meet Trin. Fortunately for Adrian, this was mere moments before the building explodes, killing two soldiers. It is determined that the explosion was the work of terrorists who apparently were not fans of the no Vietnamese in the Vietnamese bar policy. After the explosion, that news is censored, but Cronauer locks himself in the studio and tells everyone about the explosion that didn't happen. Dickerson cuts him off before Cronauer can complete his broadcast. After this violation of military policy, Adrian is suspended. Hawk, who enjoys comedy and joke writing as a hobby, takes over his show. After a painful attempt at being funny and rousing and the rousing polka music, the station is flooded with letters requesting Adrian's return. During his suspension, Cronauer spends his time chasing Trin. Other than a group date that includes Trin's entire family, Adrian did not get anywhere with her. Fuh is the secret, my man. You got to have some good fun. General Taylor intervenes and orders Hawk to end the suspension and get Cronauer back on the air. Frustrated by the censors and the senseless war, Cronauer refuses to open the mic. Garlic, the ever diligent sidekick is trying to get Adrian back to work when their vehicle becomes stopped in a congested street while waiting for the jackknife water Buffalo to be cleared. They run into soldiers from the first infantry division after being introduced against his wishes. By garlic, Adrian does some impromptu broadcasts for them before they go off to Nyachang Chang to fight. Meeting these young boys and with the knowledge that many will not return home, Adrian is reminded why he does what he does and agrees to go back to work. Dickerson, a downright meaty, decides that if he can't get Adrian off the air, he will just have him killed. Dickerson sends Cronauer and Garlic to interview soldiers in the field, knowing that the only road in the area, a highway to Anglap, is controlled by the Viet Cong. their jeep hits a landmine and they are forced to try to make their way home through the jungle when adrian does not make it to english class thong learns that adrian and garlic are stranded behind enemy lines in an effort to save kronauer thong steals a van and charges to their rescue thong finds the pair after the trio is found by the marines they are returned to the safety of saigon after this incident, Dickerson is almost giddy as he now has what he needs to get rid of Adrian, declaring Kronauer is now off the air for good. Dickerson learns that Thong is VC and was responsible for the bombing at Jimmy Waz. Dickerson has arranged for an honorable discharge, providing Cronauer leaves quietly. General Taylor arrives and informs Cronauer that, regrettably, he cannot help him since his friendship with Dong would place the reputation of the U.S. Army at risk. After Taylor leaves, Cronauer asks Dickerson why he engineered his dismissal. Dickerson open, openly admits his personal dislike for Cronauer, his sense of humor, and his style of broadcasting. After Cronauer leaves, Taylor, who apparently overheard the confrontation, casually informs an astonished Dickerson that he is being transferred to Guam, presumably as a punishment for his vendetta against Adrian. Kronauer, shocked and hurt that Thong is VC, goes after him not only to confront him, but to tell him his cover is blown and the South Vietnamese army is looking for him, and if they find him, he will be executed. In a confrontation in a small Vietnamese village, Kronauer blasts Thong for his actions against the American forces. Emerging from the shadows, Thong explains that the United States military has decimated his family, and that the americans are the real bad guys the next day on his way to the airport with garlic and under mp escort cronauer sets up a quick softball game with students from his english class where he gets to say goodbye to Trin. as he boards the plane he gives garlic a tape farewell message garlic taking cronauer's place as dj plays the tape in the air the next morning it begins with a yell goodbye vietnam and runs through a few of cronauer's impressions before he wishes everyone to get home safely, and that is good morning, Vietnam
1: Well, Scott, we're glad you were here to help us through the Vietnamese punctuation and syntax. <laughs> uh, I have a few uh I want to make sure I understand it. You said you' gotta have some good fa did you mean fuck or do you just just good fa?
2: <laughs> I will uh, leave that up to you okay, and although so you know if we're speaking Vietnamese. The way that you say Buddha is actually fuck. Oh, okay. So, so, you know, I don't know if you're talking about Buddha. You're talking about anyway. So, just so, a interesting so, tidbit. So,
1: fuck is a god in Vietnamese. Yes, that that would be true. Okay. And then you said. Uh, it was, and so we're clear. That's what I was referring to when I said that. I'm sure you were. And <laughs> then when you're referring to he uh, bribed someone uh, to teach a class so he can meet Trin or Trim. Because either word works for what he was his intentions were at the time. So,
2: <laughs> Well, you know, it, it was made clear in the movie she's not that hairy. So I, that, I can't true. say for sure. <laughs>
1: All right. Good Morning Vietnam was released on Christmas Day of 1987, the same day as Pinocchio and the Emperor of the Night, which I have never heard of and probably will never mention again. Same month as Wall Street, Throw Mama from the Train, Overboard, Batteries Not Included, Broadcast News, and the classic... Leonard Part Six. It grossed over $123 million. It was the fourth highest grossing film of 1987, right behind the number one film of Three Men and a Baby, Fatal Attraction, and Beverly Hills Cop, and right in front of Moonstruck, The Untouchables, and The Secret of My Success. As uh, aforementioned, was nominated for one Academy Award, which was Best Actor for Robin Williams, who lost to Michael Douglas in Wall Street. It was directed by Barry Levinson, who just prior to this had directed Tin Man, Young Sherlock Holmes, The Natural, and Diner. Um, So that's kind of the background on Good Morning Vietnam. Now, Scott, this is essentially your first pick. You've been on a few episodes, but this is the first time you've selected a film. So what do you distinctly remember about this film? Why is it one of your 80s classics?
2: What's perhaps most interesting for me is I didn't even see this movie in the 80s.
1: Okay. Uh, you, you don't understand the premise of the show, Scott. You are just mistaken. <laughs> this is not the best films we saw in the 2000s. So,
2: Oh, okay. Well, I, I saw it a little bit later in life. I actually had an interest in it when I was in college for two reasons. First off, I, I learned Vietnamese. And I spent a lot of time with the Vietnamese people. So obviously that tie-in intrigued me. And I was also working at a radio station. So uh, on a whim, I was actually uh, in Walmart, And saw it uh, on their big clearance bin. It was only a couple of dollars on VHS. So I picked it up. I've always wanted to see this. And uh, watched it for the first time in college. And have loved it ever since.
1: Chris, did you see Good Morning Vietnam in the 80s? Or did you come to it later in life?
2: I came to it a little bit later. Um, This was
0: one that I saw sometime in college. Maybe after. So it was, I would say, mid-90s.
1: Really? This is one I saw in the theater multiple times. And I remember having a VHS copy of it pretty early on in life. I don't know if I had it in the 80s, but when I started working at the video store in the 90s, I know I got it fairly quickly after that. And that was early 90s. This, is, this was uh, one of the Robin Williams essentials to me. I loved this film. I mean, I, I, and I loved him in it. This is about as quintessential Robin Williams as you get.
0: I think for me, I didn't see it right off the bat because of the theme of Vietnam, and typically any sort of war film isn't as interesting to me as others, and um, and so I think I just passed on it. Even with Robin Williams in this, do you have
1: flashbacks of your war days? Is
0: that that's what it is? <laughs> Back in Nam, yeah, when I uh, worked at the radio bar. station, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I was a black man driving around Robin Williams through town.
1: Scott, why didn't you see it in the 80s other than it was R rated, which I I found that very, I mean, it's R rated for language, but it's, I I, I found that kind of surprising now because I don't, I think of it as
2: pretty tame. Yeah, I would agree. This uh, certainly is not a hard R by any means. Primarily, that was the reason. um, When it first came out, I was, I was pretty young. Uh, I I certainly wasn't driving and didn't have access to go to the theater on my own. And it's not one that uh, my parents would have taken me to. And, uh, you know, back then, uh, Netflix and movies just weren't near as accessible. So it was, like I said, just not really a viewing option for me growing up where I did. So it's kind of why I came to it later in life. It's, uh, I, I remember when I was a kid being interested mostly because I knew it was Mork and I saw the commercials and whatnot and I wanted to go see this movie with Mork or with Popeye. Uh, <laughs> So that that's kind of where my interest level first came in, but I just didn't have access to it until I was older.
0: I think if our soldiers would have had spinach in Vietnam, the outcome would have been much different.
1: <laughs> True. And if they knew they were fighting for women that looked like Shelley Duvall, they may have just stayed there for some trend, you know. <laughs>
2: Um, is certainly uh, outlooks Shelley Duvall. So. That,
1: that's true. Robin Williams outlooks Shelley Duvall. Force Whitaker outlooks <laughs> Shelley Duvall. Uh, you know, it, it's weird that this kind of came in the era of uh, kind of Vietnam films. I mean, there was a kind of resurgence starting. Well, I guess you can go back to The Deer Hunter in the 70s, but it became very... I don't know, very uh, hip to be making a Vietnamese film a year before this platoon comes out. And that's, I mean, obviously very serious, a very accurate drama. But you also had the Missing missing in Action series. You had the Rambo films, obviously taking it back in a more modern era, not the Vietnam era. But this is kind of the first comedy that kind of looks at it in Vietnam, Vietnam. I mean, it's a drama, but it's got a lot of comedy to it. It looks back in kind of a, a, a joking manner that there was something funny in what they were do. What was going on over there.
0: Would you consider Full Metal Jacket, which came out uh, that year, I think? I, I don't think it's necessarily a comedy, but wouldn't you say it's a little bit more comedic-oriented? Than this? Well, no, than, than those other films you just oh, mentioned.
1: yes, but... I think Full Metal Jacket, the first half of that film, is funny just at what they have to go through in basic training, which apparently is very true, but to a teenager in the 80s, that was. That was fucking hilarious to me that, you know, that someone would be that abusive to you. I mean, now as an adult, I understand the idea of breaking them down mentally and then rebuilding them back up physically and mentally. But back then, it was just like, why would anyone suffer through this crap and not just walk out the door? You know, that's. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. So I did find it a lot funny. I didn't find the second half of the film funnier. I mean, it, it takes a no. very serious and dark turn.
0: It, it's got a little dark ending, yeah.
1: Yeah. But, uh,. I, I do find I, – I still think the first half of the film is much more interesting than the second half of, the, of that film. But uh, I wouldn't consider that one a comedy by any stretch of the imagination. This one I would consider more comedy than drama. And obviously the casting of Robin Williams is – that's the purpose. This is before Robin Williams has really established himself as a dramatic actor, although he's done some dramatic roles.
2: I really cannot think – I mean this this was this movie, in my opinion, defines – who Robin Williams was as an actor, incredibly funny, able to do just incredible improv, yet actually really skilled and gifted and able to pull off a dramatic role. I mean, the range that you need to have to make this movie work, I can't think of anyone else who could pull it off.
1: No, in in the air, in the time, I can't think of anybody. And I, I would agree with you that if there's one film that I think represents Robin Williams' his, his career and acting, this is probably it. World According to Garp is probably the, a close second for me because there's a lot of comedy and a lot of drama in that, but I mean, he is a great comedian and he's a great dramatic actor and you see him do a lot of great dramas after this, you see him do a lot of great comedies after this, but there's very few that he crosses over and gets a little, uh, you know, probably an equal balance of both and that's what this film is. Plus, as you said, his improv, I mean that's, uh, a lot of those Little uh, radio riffs that he's creating, I don't think are scripted. They're that's him improving and improving in in material that was literally, you know, time appropriate. He's not jumping into a, a Reagan joke or anything like that. He's you know he's he's covering material that would have been in existence in the '60s.
2: And what's interesting is not only was the material in existence in the '60s, he made the viewers of the late '80s find that humor funny. That's difficult to do.
1: Yeah, not too many people will find a Ethel Merman joke that funny in the nineteen eighty seven. I assure you. So,
0: well, she was pretty good in Airplane. <laughs> <with the cameo. laughs>
1: that's true, but that's seven years before. That's you know, that's in her heyday, right there. But
2: you know, I think there was a good surrounding cast. A lot of people, uh, a lot of good casting decisions, in my opinion. Bruno Kirby, who I think is another very very funny actor. Uh, his Stephen Hawke character, I, I found to be his, hysterical in the fact he was so unfunny. I mean uh, getting on and doing that little Frenchy bit, it was so, so bad. It was funny, and I, I think it took talent, talent to do that. Some of the other characters, General Taylor, I enjoyed uh, – I'm just looking at IMDb. No Mo- Noble Willingham, I thought he did a good job. Lots of the surrounding characters, uh, it just helped make a really good movie.
1: They have, I mean, Forrest Whitaker's not really a character actor. I think he's more of a, a leading man actor at this point in time. But uh, that's what he was back then. I mean, he is he yet to establish himself in a, a major role. In fact, his kind of breakout as a lead actor doesn't come the following year with Bird, uh, directed by Clint Eastwood the, in 1988. So he, at this point, had done. He was a supporting role in Platoon. He was a supporting role in Color of Money. He was a supporting role in Stakeout and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He has not been the leading guy, but he, he does a really good job. In fact, I almost think of him as so different in that in this film compared to what he is now evolved into is that he plays kind of these tough guy heavies and he is far from the tough guy in that film.
0: He's almost like a clumsy, nerdy guy in this film. Yep, yeah,
1: very wet behind the ears. Is,
0: mm-hmm. is that you know
1: he's very much the comic foil for Robin Williams. But that's a hard role to play as well, is that you have to be the straight man compared to you know the 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 manic who's just it can go anywhere.
0: Well, I think you, uh, I think you could just see them sit back. When it's Robin's turn to do something, and just let him go, and you know they all kind of just watch, even on the screen. Like I understand that it he was the DJ and this was his show in the context of the film, but I think that they were just watching Robin Williams perform and not um, actually acting like actors in the background of a scene. I think they were just enjoying it for just to see Robin Williams go.
1: Now, obviously, with Robin Williams' death uh, last year, uh, well, let me preface this whole conversation. I remember in the 90s this constant, constant talk of a sequel to this film called Good Morning Chicago, um, where his character is back over, you know, obviously on U.S. soil and has has run into problems of another sort. And it was one of the films that I was like, at the time, I was very interested in seeing, but I didn't know – where it would have, where, you know, basically what the plot could have been. Now I don't know if you guys had ever heard that.
0: I think it's ridiculous. Who would ever set a film in Chicago,
1: <laughs> John John Hughes? But uh, besides that, had you guys ever heard that they were they tried to develop a sequel to this for years?
2: You know, I was not aware of that, and I got to tell you, I, I'm glad they didn't. There was uh, not only the humor behind the movie, but I, I think back in '87, I mean. We're only 12 years removed from, from the Vietnam War. I think there was a lot of social commentary and kind of looking back with in a sad way at, at what actually took place during Vietnam. And I, part of what the movie, or part of the reason I think the movie is so successful is not only is it funny, but it, it really depicts the message that we didn't handle this whole situation right. And I don't know how you can come to Chicago and have a funny DJ and still have some sort of. Uh, social commentary or something with a little impact from, you know, a DJ in Chicago. I mean, it, it might have been fun. It might have been more of what I think everyone enjoys and seeing Robin Williams do his improv, but just kind of the full package type movie, I, I think it would have cheapened it. You
1: know, I have no idea what they planned on doing it. And obviously, with his death, that that's never going to happen now. And it, it probably faded in the 90s and they, it went to development help. But I, you know, I like Scott. I'm glad it never happened. I, you know, I just kind of wonder: was it a? You know, obviously it's a money grab, but I think they could have made something that could have been socially relevant and commented on something that was going on in the, uh, you know, late '60s, early '70s, if you didn't wait too long to develop it. But who knows?
0: What year was the uh, the riots in Chicago for the convention?
1: Was that '72 or is that '68?
0: Uh, 68 sounds more like it.
1: A- might have been 68. I can't remember, but I, obviously it was one of the presidential election years, and that's 68 or 72. So I, you know, th- th- that there, I mean, that could have been your topic right there if he, he, if he was a, if he was indeed around. Granted, supposedly this Adrian Cronauer, the real Adrian Cronauer, had shopped this around as a uh, essentially a television series for tried to shop it around for years, and no one wanted to make it. Saying no one wants to watch a comedy about war even though mash was one of the big television shows at the time um and then shopped it to hollywood and they bid on it but then completely scrapped his entire idea and wrote something just using his name essentially that none of this actually really happened so uh, i thought that was pretty interesting I was like hey, we will we'll take your general idea and move on from there
0: well, that makes sense because there's kind of some weak elements in the story, so I could see it being pieced together from uh, another story.
1: Okay, Chris, you're going to sit there and throw that out there, the little gauntlet, weak elements. What are you referring to, sir?
0: Well, I don't think they ever developed fully a start to finish with the the love interest. What what was her name, Scott? Trim. 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 Trim
2: is actually how you would probably say it.
0: Oh. I would put a few extra R's in there if I could roll them. Um, I, I just, I never felt that that was an interesting or compelling part of this film, and that that could have come out completely. I mean, sure, he, it was a, a way to get one of the characters who's a part of the Viet Cong close to him, but I just didn't really see much use for her in this film. And it, it kind of threw me. I would have liked to have just seen three the relationship between between Cronauer uh, and the military, and Cronauer and uh, his little Asian boy. And
1: okay, now you've taken a really dark t- wow. turn. Yeah. Remember,
0: they're in
2: Vietnam, not Thailand.
0: <laughs> yeah. Wow. Oh. <laughs> I I get all those countries mixed up, but. I don't know I, I just didn't I just didn't think that I kind of thought she was thrown in there because you need a girl in the film.
1: You know, I I thought, I thought she served the story process of introducing him to the brother and getting him in there. I, I thought I agree with you that he seems to kind of acknowledge fairly early on that she's it's never going to work out, but yet he keeps every time the brother uses her as a, you know, almost the is is the bait to lure him someplace that he just falls for it and just oh okay let's go you know and it's, it, that he never picks up on it. it seems I I would agree that is probably one of the weakest story elements is that he just has no awareness of what's going on and he seems to be far more intelligent than that yes Scott bag on your
2: film <laughs> I can't bag on this film I love this movie how many times have I, you watched this film How many times have I seen it Yeah. I'm going to say I've seen this movie since the first time probably 20 times.
1: Okay. That's probably about as many times as I've seen it. I've seen it quite a bit.
0: I've only seen it a handful of times, maybe five or six. Not a whole lot.
2: One thing I like about this movie is I watched it to prepare for this podcast about two weeks ago. I could easily put it on right now after only watching it two weeks and enjoy it just as much as I did two weeks ago. There's just I, I just love this movie.
0: Did you think at any point that Sergeant Major Dickerson was a little over the top f- uh, from time to time, a little too stereotypical?
2: You know, I I didn't have a problem with that. Uh, kind of the almost the throwback from the the Full Metal Jacket. I, as a viewer, I mean, certainly he wasn't that extreme, but I just that that was very consistent of what I imagined based on movies, but a very strict authoritarian military leader to be. I didn't have a problem with Dickerson at all.
0: Yeah, I, I just kind of felt they could have combined his character and Lieutenant Hawk's character maybe into one, like like they had one person too many. And the the character they should have kept would have been whatever they chose Bruno Kirby to play because he was he, – uh, Times He might have even been better than Robin Williams in this film. I think he was so good. But I think uh, Sergeant Major Dickerson was just, I just thought he was flat out annoying and took me out of the the film at a couple points. And it wasn't because he was a well-written asshole. I just thought he was an asshole. (laughs)
1: See, I disagree with you That you needed a viable threat to Croner. You needed an authority figure That he is not going to be The butt of a joke And that by separating the character Into the authority figure And the clown um, With uh, Lieutenant Hawk That 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 works so much better Because Lieutenant Hawk has The audience is not going to Take him seriously as a threat If he's basically the butt of everyone's jokes And that no one takes him seriously
0: and, and you didn't find it weird that, like, the, the two of them were leaving the general's office, like, two school kids that just got scolded and, and kicked out. Like, I, I just thought it was a little weird, like, these two are buddy-buddying to get Cronauer to get out of there. And um, I, I just felt that it could have been one character.
1: Yeah, I, don't th- I think it was fine the way yeah. it is. I don't, have a, I don't have a problem with it. I, 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 I think it would have lessened the film if you would have combined it and made the authority
2: figure the clown. Yeah, he could not – I think you need both characters to make that work. Kirby's character, you know, trying to do the comedy, the the accents and everything, that just doesn't work if he was also the kind of the the hardcore military guy. I I think the two characters actually showed some contrast between the authoritarian military and I, uh, I thought it added to the movie.
1: Yeah, so you're wrong, Chris. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
2: Told you.
0: All you know, I'm I saying is that uh, they did it better with Blexi Blues.
1: I'm sorry, <laughs> what? No. No.
2: I have a question, and this is, this is probably something that will not be entertaining to most. But I, where I have a lot of experience working with Vietnamese people, I've actually, to a degree, lived some of these scenes. Uh, I've spent hours teaching English to Vietnamese people, and even before I had seen this movie, I – I, I stood in front of them and taught them song lyrics just to work on pronunciation, and I had a, a room full of Vietnamese people singing, uh, Take Me Down to the Paradise City, you know, things like that. <laughs> my point being, I saw this, and because of my personal experiences, this was just like, it, it, it meant something very, very special to me, because I had lived to a degree some of these scenes, and my question, the interactions with the Vietnamese people, the softball game, the jokes he was telling them trying to teach English. Obviously, I have my biases. Did you guys who haven't had the same experiences working with the Vietnamese people find that endearing or interesting or did, did you feel it kind of drug the movie down?
0: What I. Felt the whole time I was seeing this was I felt like all the Vietnamese people were trying to keep from laughing the whole time. (laughs) They obviously weren't actors, and they're trying to to uh, keep from giggling at saying probably what these crazy lines were that they were given. But no, I. I think it showed a. Uh, it was more of the heartwarming part of this film, and I think it added a lot to it. And it was, um, it, in some ways, it was almost like two films. You had the the military film, and you had the uh, the personal people part of this film, and and it had a very good place in it.
1: I would I would say that a large part of it, Scott, that's kind of the heart of the film that that showing that that. You know, we the military was there to help the Vietnamese people, these Southern Vietnamese people, and that they were being treated just as harshly by many of the Americans as the 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 enemy. You know, because they couldn't tell the difference, and therefore that their their own prejudice and how they perceived them, not allowing them in the bar, treating them with disrespect, killing, shooting them. uh, You know that they're and, and even seeing the the uh, experience from uh, Trin's, you know, brother, that how, you know, the people he lost, his neighbors and his family, that, and and they weren't the enemy. They were, they were civilians. And I I think that's kind of the message is that obviously uh, this is a film that I think has a very kind of, peace tone, you know, or a tone of peace in it. And the idea of that, we didn't really know what we were doing over there, at least the soldiers didn't know what they were doing over there. And they weren't equipped to do this particular kind of warfare. And that, that I think, I I think showing that the interactions with the people, uh, at least showed that first of all, not all the Americans were the same way, but also that they were just people as well. Wow, Scott, you just took it into a very serious and very dark place. You know, no jokes in that. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, it's, try not to let it happen again. And next time, when you do nine to five, so, uh, okay. I've got one other thought. Do you think this film saves Robin Williams's, fi- or at least changes Robin Williams' film career? Because let me read you the names of the three films that he did immediately preceding this film: Best of Times club paradise and seize the day
0: club paradise could have killed it right there.
1: I would say best of times could have killed it too. Cause that's a horrible fucking film.
0: <laughs> I, I think, uh, it made Hollywood take notice that he was more than a, a comedian on Coke that was going to, that you couldn't count on to do anything serious. You know, I remember hearing a story about him being at an awards show, maybe the, uh, Academy Awards and they didn't, they were afraid to put the camera on him because they thought he would do something crazy. And then he goes and makes a movie like this where it shows that, yeah, he's got a serious side and he can be counted on to deliver a strong performance and bring in the money. So I think this was a turning point for him.
1: Yeah, but Seize the Day is actually a dramatic role. No comedy in that film.
0: But wow. it's not a major blockbuster no, hit,
1: though. No, it's not. But, I mean, he he's done – at this point in time, he's done to – D- dramatic roles uh, with *Seize the Day* and *World of to Garp*, and someone could argue that *Moscow on the Hudson* is a little bit serious too. It's got a comedy elements, but there's yeah. there's some really serious themes in that film and serious acting by him in it. But you know, he had begun to fade from my memory. I mean, Mork was Mork does horrible movies. That's what I remember going in to see this film, and then it was like, aha, finally, he's found a, a film that fits his talents.
0: Well, I think. Popeye really hurt his movie career a lot.
1: Popeye started his movie career. That's his first film. I mean, it 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 did not.
0: It it just didn't. It kind of fizzled at the end of that film. I mean, there was so much potential, and it didn't live up to it. And I think a lot of that was was uh, thrown on his shoulders, even though it was probably more a matter of they ran out of money and couldn't make the ending properly but i think that kind of did cast a doubt on him as a leading man. Popeye, he's the best thing in Popeye. But it wasn't a commercial success. No, it was, it was
1: it made decent money. It didn't it wasn't a bomb. It wasn't great, but it wasn't a horrible. I mean, i think it made its money back. You know, we haven't reviewed it yet, but I think it made its money back. And he went on to make film after film after film f- through the early eighties until he gets to this. And then this, I see this is the absolute turning point in his career. You, you can almost draw the line in the sand with Good Morning Vietnam. And then what he does after this is a, you have very shortly, you have Dead Poets Society in 1989. You got Awakenings in 1990, Fisher King, I think in 91 or 92. I mean, he is, he goes in, in, in re, defines his career at that point.
2: I suspect that he would, but for Good Morning Vietnam, he would probably not be near as beloved as he is now, especially all the reaction that everyone had back when he passed. I, I think it was because this movie set the tone for the rest of his career. He could be funny, he could be slapstick, he could be this just improv king, yet he had this dramatic side that... Uh, you know, I, I also suspect a lot of these movies people just didn't see. It was Mork and Popeye and perhaps uh, anything that was less commercially successful. It might have been not have been viewed. I'd be real curious to know Dead Poet Society came out two years after Good Morning Vietnam. And I, I wonder when that casting decision was made. I I don't know if he had signed for the film before or after the release of Good Morning Vietnam, but I would suspect that when you could see his dramatic side, that was perhaps what may have uh, sparked some interest in him doing this very dramatic role that he did in Dead Poets Society.
1: No, I mean he probably most definitely was cast for Dead Poets Society after Good Morning Vietnam, and also once again for it's a it's a touchstone. In production, so it's it's the same company, a production company that did Good Morning Vietnam. So I'm sure that they went, okay, he can do this. Let's go, let, let's let him go do it. But I mean, you know, he, he attaches himself very much to Disney for a period of time here. I mean, you have that one, you have Aladdin fairly early in the 2000s, or excuse me, the 90s. You have Flubber, which, although a horrible film, is, you know, did a lot at the box office. I mean, it's, he, he, i mean it, it it's weird I, I honestly think this was a, this is a career defining role for him and I, I honestly do believe what I said at the beginning. this is probably the quintessential film for anybody who wants to know what Robin Williams was like as an actor this has all it has the best of everything he could do as much as I think there are the films that he's an even better dramatic actor, and there are other films where he's an even better comedic actor. this is the best Uh, amalgamation of both, both elements that what he was known
2: for. I can say that if I were to go to a desert island and could bring but one Robin Williams movie, as much as I enjoyed The Fisher King or Hook or uh, if you're, you're going to go to Dead Poet Society, if you're going to go to a desert island, then you need to
1: take Survivors. That's what you need to take. Is it, that's, <laughs> uh,
2: if if I can't find a copy of Survivors, <laughs>
1: which you would have is, probably trouble finding,
2: <laughs> uh, did they even make that? All I can say is, if I don't have it in my collection, it can't be found.
1: Oh, you're uh, just not a true Walter Mathau fan, now are you? So. Uh, moving on this would be the film you take with this you. would
2: be the film I this is to me what Robin Williams is incredibly talented incredibly funny and just fantastic range and this more than any other movie that he did sums up who I believe he was as an actor
1: okay let's go around the horn Scott you get to go last your film Chris good morning Vietnam does it stand the test of time
0: yeah i I think it more than stands a test of time. I mean, for one, this is a period piece. It doesn't have any special effects that can get dated um It's filmed very well it's you know there's no call outs on the directing style or anything like that. So I think this is a timeless period piece and because he made the jokes fit that time it's not going to be dated anytime soon. I'll go
1: next. Yes, it stands the test of time. Uh, obviously, I've already indicated this is the probably the Robin Williams film if you, someone wants to see what he was about. Uh, it's not my favorite Robin Williams film, but it's pretty close. It's, in, it's probably in my top three, and the other two would be not surprising picks at all. But, Scott, your film, you get the final
2: say. I don't think anyone will be shocked when I say, <laughs> yes, it, it stands the test of time. If you can make jokes about the 60s funny in the 80s, They're still going to be funny in the 2000s and in the future. I thought it was funny. I thought Robin Williams was brilliant. And this is, in fact, my favorite Robin Williams movie. I own it. I watch it regularly. And I definitely say it it stands the test of time.
1: All right, that does it for this week's review of Good Morning Vietnam. Thanks again for joining us and listening in to our little bi-weekly podcast. If you had a good time, the fun doesn't have to stop here. You can follow us on Facebook at Lunchtime Movie Review or on Twitter at Lunchtime Movie. On either Facebook or Twitter, you can keep up on our news on upcoming podcasts on all three of the Movie House Memories podcasts, Mail Bonding, movie, movie House Memories, and, of course, Lunchtime Movie Review. Additionally, if you've enjoyed yourselves and you want to do us a favor, when you go on iTunes or Stitcher to download the most recent Lunchtime Movie Review episode, uh, be sure to rate the podcast as well as write a short review. It would be much appreciated by, by us. Uh, of course, we always like the reviews that are positive, but we appreciate any feedback that we can get from any listeners of the show. Well, that does it for this episode of Lunchtime Movie Review. Until next time, I'm Patrick.
0: I'm Scott. And I'm late for a plane ride to Guam.
1: And we got to get out of here right now, and you guys are invited.
0: This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for Lunchtime Movie Review, Fireworks, is provided courtesy of Alexander Nakaranda at SerpentSoundStudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Lunchtime Movie Review, the MHM Podcast Network, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise
2: noted. General Taylor gives – excuse me.
0: It sounds like you need a little help from George Takai.
2: (laughs) I could definitely use some help from George Takai. Oh, my. (laughs) 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 By the way, that, oh, my, funniest thing in this uh, particular (laughs) summary.